Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas, and we're board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. All righty. So for this week, we've got Veronica York with us. Say hi, Veronica. Hello, everyone. Veronica, tell us who you are and what you do. So I am a high conflict divorce coach. And basically what I do is I work with mostly protective moms, some dads who are going through a divorce with what we consider a high conflict individual. And in, you know, short terms, that's basically someone who is making decisions, not in the best interest of the children or situation, but in the best interest really of themselves. You're a divorce coach. Tell me what that is. And I'm going to follow up with how how you got into that. Okay. So a divorce coach is someone who can come alongside you while you're going through the process. This is, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a therapist. I don't take the place of a lawyer or a therapist. I cannot give legal advice. I basically come in to help strategize, help with documentation. Communication is a big one. How to prepare and emotional and, you know, moral support is really the biggie there. Yeah. And that's, I will say as the practitioner, I know you and I've talked about this, but that's very helpful. I mean, for us, we're obviously, and we talk a lot about how we're there for our clients. We want to be their advocates, everything like that. But, you know, ultimately, I think I'm a very sympathetic person, but you know, you may not want to talk to your divorce attorney at 300 to 500 to $600 an hour about kind of how you're dealing with this emotionally. And it's a lot. I mean, don't you see that with your clients? It's a hard time, even for the simple ones that you get particularly high conflict, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the key. And to be honest, when, you know, I've been through my own high conflict divorce and and going through it, I mean, there are even family members and close friends who don't really get it. It can be feel very isolated and alone and that nobody understands what you're going through. And so that's really where a divorce coach comes in. Do you typically like to get involved like at the start of the process or wait till it kind of gets high conflict? Or what do you prefer? And then when do you see people contacting you typically? Well, preferably it would be at the very beginning of the process because strategy is so important and to have a strategy going forward at the beginning is very helpful. Obviously, I see people in all stages of their divorce. I mean, from the beginning all the way to they've been in court, in and out of court for several years. You know, if I'm thinking about representing a client, you know, they're talking to me sometimes daily, sometimes a couple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. It just sort of depends on what's going on with their case. And mm-hmm. obviously, we're available for them as things go by. But you know, how do you like to do it? Are, are you doing phone calls with them? Are you meeting with them? Are you going to court with them? What's your role in the process for the client? Yeah, so it really just depends on the case. I typically will have sessions with a client and the frequency of those sessions is really up to them and what their case is, you know, how much is involved. So they can book single sessions or multiple sessions, but I also offer what I call a six-month contract. And so when I was going through, I felt like I just needed to pick up the phone anytime to call and have some support, whether it's text or email. And so my six-month contract is basically a flat fee for six months and they have access to me 24-7. Is that literally 24-7? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, going through a high conflict divorce, anything can happen at any time. Yeah. And just to have someone to call when you get what we call triggered 
and talk through it and calm down is really helpful. Well, I appreciate that because, you know, as the lawyer, I, I try to do the same. You know, I try to be available 24-7, but I'm not always, particularly those late night calls or the weekend calls. Sometimes it's the client really just needs to hear like, hey, that sucks. And we're going to deal with that and we're going to take care of it. But I always feel a little limited after hours and stuff like that because I'll take phone calls over the weekends. I'll take phone calls at night or certainly text with my clients before hours and after hours. Those who really like to text with me realize that I'm a crazy person. I usually start working around around 5 a.m. in the morning. But, uh, and, you know, if you'll keep up with me on that, you know, have at it. But, you know, it, it's kind of limited, right? I think a lot of times people don't want to necessarily hear from, I mean, they want to hear from me, but, you know, you call your divorce lawyer over the weekend and I go, oh my God, that's awful. That's horrible. Okay, we're going to take care of this on Monday whenever I can, because I can't do anything. I think for you, it's, you can actually help somebody. I mean, you can actually talk through the process. What I observe, but you tell me is, is that it really is sort of a helpless feeling out there, particularly how slow the court system works. And, and how things can get delayed. And, and we'll talk about it in a second about that's often a strategy on the other side to delay things. But is that your experience? Oh, yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head there. It is the slow turning wheels of justice and it's frustrating. And when you have something happen, when you feel like someone is just taking advantage of you or you know, your kids are not safe in some cases. And that can be very hard because you just want to do something right then and there to make sure that you're doing everything you can to make sure the situation is okay for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so tell me about, tell me back up a little bit about yourself and how'd you get into what you're doing and tell us about your experience with the divorce process. I always try to talk about mine. I mean, I've been through a divorce, you know, the divorce lawyer having gone through divorce, gives me a certain perspective. I tell my clients it's not fun. Nobody thinks going through a divorce is fun. There's certainly a range how divorces can go. So I try to relate, but I also, and I try to be really open about what I've been through, the process, the effect it had on me and my family, you know, kind mm-hmm. of the relationship I have with my ex-wife and the interplay with my current wife, and family and kids and everything. But, you know, everybody has their unique perspective and I strongly believe in us, you know, sharing our truth with our clients. So talk to me about kind of your experience and then how you got into what you're doing. Yeah, so my background, I had a 20-year career in the television sales industry and went through divorce in 2016. And then in 2018 is when things kind of went more high conflict. The cases that I really specialize in are cases that involve domestic violence, child abuse, and this includes narcissistic abuse as well. And so I got into it because when I went through my own divorce, I felt like, you know, I wasn't being understood by the court system. They were not able to really understand the abuse part of that. And so I was like, well, you know, I did the best I could through. And during that time, obviously, I just did a lot of research and I did seek out a lot of help in that area to understand how to deal with that in a strategic way in the way I communicated and in the way I documented things for the court to be able to really get a good idea of what was going on in my case. And so one of the resources that I reached out to was called One Mom's Battle. And it's Tina Swinnon out in California, and she kind of has her own thing. But she did a certification program to train others to do what she was doing. She was doing coaching at the time, too. And so that's what I did. And I just felt like it was needed. And, you know, during COVID and all of that, I was actually laid off or let go from my job was eliminated where I was in the TV industry. And so that just gave me an opportunity to do this full time. (laughs) That's where the greatest ideas are started, right? Out of necessity. 
Yes. Tell me how you do clients in this particular area of the state or are a particular state or what, what geographic region do you typically work with? So, yeah, I, I do like to specialize in Texas because um, I'm familiar with the laws, but I do work with clients all over the country because, you know, a high conflict divorce here is the right. same as a high conflict divorce anywhere. And I can certainly help because I'm not a lawyer and I don't give legal advice. I can certainly help anybody anywhere. Well, talk to me about, well, picking up on that point, I mean, again, just to emphasize, it's, I think it's a component that's missed a lot in the divorce process. As lawyers, and again, I always try to be there for my clients and stuff, but as lawyers, you know, sometimes we're that surgeon. Where the surgeon walks in, I've got a set job to do. I'm going to do the job. I'm going to bang it out of the park. And then I'm going to go home, right? That's really my job. You know, frankly, when I try a case, I kind of have to do that. And I have that conversation with my clients because, you know, I, I could have a client that I love to death and I'm trying his or her case. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm in the courtroom, I really can't be thinking about when I talk to my clients about this, like I can't be thinking about necessarily, you know, how this is affecting every emotion, how difficult it is, because and we prep clients, you know, we get them ready, we talk to them about that, you know, we prep them for witness, how they're going to testify, same for depositions and stuff like that. And that's obviously a lot of work dealing with both the legal and emotional side of it. But I tell clients, you know, if when I'm trying a case, you want me focused on trying your case, you Mm -hmm. want me focused on, you know, making the best presentation of evidence. I mean, before COVID, I would warn clients. I mean, this is kind of a quirky thing I do. But you know, if I'm in the middle of a five day trial, we'll have breaks and stuff like that. And I'll warn clients like, hey, on breaks, I grab my notes, I grab whatever exhibits I'm working with, and I start pacing around because I'm a pacer. It drives my wife nuts. <laughs> I'm on the phone, or I love just sort of walking around, and I'm going up and down the steps in the courthouse, and I'm walking around and finding a quiet corner. And that's how I'm the best lawyer. I can't do that and kind of sit there and talk to you about how awful this process is because it's, it's a it can be a really traumatizing process. And so having somebody with you there, I know you've been doing this during COVID, but are you there? Are you able to go to court with clients and even if it's virtual and be there? for breaks and stuff like that to talk through the process? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Well, talk to me about, you used a phrase, I think we all know, you know, domestic violence is, and you and I've talked about, I know you you work on cases with that and high conflict cases. Talk to me about narcissistic abuse. That's something you and I've had conversations about. So what do you mean when you use that phrase? Well, what I mean is whether someone is diagnosed with narcissistic abuse or not, there are traits that you can observe in somebody when they're making decisions in regards to custody or in a divorce. And so basically, we don't really want to use that term in court so much, but what we want to do is show a pattern of behavior in a, and over time. And so what I you know encourage my clients to do is to document anytime you know there's behavior that is lack of empathy or grandiose sense of self, those types of things that are that are suspect of, you know, this person may be a high conflict individual. Yeah. How do you see that play out? I mean, you, you've been doing this for some time. I mean, how do you see, I certainly see it play out in my world. How do, how are you seeing that play out in your clients' divorces or, or post-divorce? I mean, you, you dealt with a lot, think a lot through post-divorce, but how do you yeah. see it playing out in the legal system? Well, the main issues are obviously decisions because, you know, The court decides on joint decision-making versus sole decision-making. Decision-making with somebody who who has those traits, again, their decisions are not necessarily in the best interest of the child, and they tend to make decisions, even if they hurt the child, they're really just trying to get back at the other person. And so that becomes an issue with decision-making. And then also time, they can use, someone who's an abuser can use 
child exchanges to harass and to continue their abuse on their, you know, on the other person. What about through the litigation process? Have you seen that serial litigator that uses the the system to, uh, you know, basically uh, harass, you know, frankly, abuse the ex just through just through the process? Yeah. And financial abuse is a huge one there yeah. too. That goes into what you just said, because if the other, if that high conflict individual has a lot of resources and money and power, they absolutely use that to, to, like you said, delay things and drag it out and, you know, drain the resources of the other person. And yeah, it becomes this going back and in and out of court and all the different people you have to pay like evaluators and amicuses and so forth. Well, as a lawyer, I certainly see that. And, you know, the legal system is and should be set up to where everybody has access to the legal system. And that's a beauty of our of our legal system in the United States and the state of Texas is that, you know, you can, the courthouse is open. I mean, the Texas Constitution says that we have open courts. That's the whole point is that there's a system out there to resolve our disputes. But, you know, like all great things in life, it opens up the possibility for, for abuse. I mean, where people are just constantly filing, you know, frivolous lawsuits. Sometimes there's legitimate reasons to be in court. I mean, I, I tell my clients that all the time. It's like, you know, nobody wants to be in court. Well, here's what I actually say to my clients and actually goes into what you were saying. I always tell my clients, nobody wants to be in court except for crazy people, only crazy people. You have to be crazy to want to be in court. Sometimes you have to be in court. That sort of goes to the what you're saying, though, about the narcissistic abuse and abusing the system and everything like that. Is there are some people that just figured out how to use the system to be abusive to the spouse. So they do that by just constantly filing things, frivolous lawsuits, constant modifications. I see a lot of them go and represent themselves, which kind of plays in that narcissism. I'll just go do this myself. And I love our mm-hmm. system that we have a system that has open justice and open courthouse, but it does, you know, it can be taken advantage of. I know from my perspective, and I want to ask kind of what you do with your clients, from my perspective, it is hard because I've got a client in having to pay for me to deal with this. But I always, you know, I, the, the advice I give on the legal side of things is you just have to be super stubborn. I mean, the, the way you deal with a, a bully, frankly, is you punch them really hard in the nose. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's like that when you have somebody that's just serial abuser through the litigation process and they're constantly coming after you, you got to take a stand because they're so encouraged if it's the, well, they file this frivolous lawsuit and there's lawyers you'll talk to is like, well, give them something so they'll go away. Give them this extra time or pay, you know, reduce your child support or pay more than you're supposed to or, or whatever. Just please make this person go away. A lot, most of the time it doesn't work. It just encourages them because, you know, they filed something frivolous, you gave in and it taught them that that's the way to, to affect you. Then they do it again, they do it again. And you really have to sort of stand your ground and, and you know, the court can order attorney's fees. There's more extreme sanctions the court can do if it really is continuous, but it's, it's, frustrated. It's hard. So talk to me about the emotional side of it. You know, you have somebody that's standing up for herself or himself and it's still happening. Well, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I always tell my clients that if you're looking for validation, the court system is not the place to get it. Again, the cases I deal with, the main issue is the custody issues. And so, you know, that's where we focus on how do we keep, if there is an abuse, it's a domestic violence or child abuse in a situation, how do we keep these children safe? And I agree with you. That's the one issue we, you know, where I take a stand because it's if there needs to be supervised visitation, then there needs to be supervised visitation. And the emotional side of that is tremendous because when if an abuser wants to hurt the other person, they understand that going through the kids is the best way to do it. 
Um, unfortunately, they just use them as pawns because the misconception in courts right now, or a lot of the time, is that if you're in an abusive relationship, when the relationship ends, the abuse ends. Well, that's not the case at all. Post-separation abuse is highly prevalent in these situations. And again, when they're no longer present with the person they're abusing, then they all, they use the court system and the children to continue their abuse. Talk to me just sort of briefly about, I mean, we have lots of podcasts on this, and this is a topic that we can, and you and I have talked for a really long time about, and let's just sort of talk briefly about it. But how do you see, and I guess I'll preface this with, I see in my practice legitimate cases of parental alienation, where it's just on the nose. One parent is unjustifiably alienating a parent, the other parent from the kids. And, you know, of course, there's not something that's just, there's obviously degrees, but the parental alienation is a real thing. Talk to me, though, about how it can be used, again, sort of abusing the system. How have you seen it used where it's it's used as a weapon that's that in, in an accusation that's not true and used in the court system? Yeah, so when it's misused, it's typically the abuser using it as a way to justify why their children are not wanting to see them or spend time with them. So, of course, they're blaming the mother for essentially their actions. So the children um, may have apprehension or fear of the abuser because, you know, they've seen them, you know, be mean to their mom or they've seen or they have themselves been abused by this person. And so they tend to not want to have visitation or go on visitation or any of that. And so the abuser will use parental alienation as a way to basically blame the other the other parent and an excuse for why their children don't want to, you know, have spend time with them during their possession time. Yeah. I think if you, you know, as a practitioner, I see it. And again, there's legitimate cases of parental alienation and I've litigated those, but I've had cases, both moms and dads, where, you know, you get a mental health professional comes in that's not very skilled or trained. And, you know, they say, well, this 11 year old child doesn't have a relationship with his mom or her dad or, or whatever it is. And so therefore it must be parental alienation. It's like, well, time out. I mean, maybe that could mm-hmm. be something that's causing it. Right. Or there could be other stuff going on. Have you looked into, you know, whether or not there's any, like you were saying, like any physical abuse, any mental abuse, you know, are the kids being abused or, or is there, you know, there's something else going on. It's just, I, I see more and more, and I know you and I both talked about this and expressed frustration. I've seen more and more sort of the simplistic approach of just, well, it must be alienation, right? The kids not have, doesn't have a relationship with the other parent. So it must be alienation. So we're going to go bananas and treat this like an alienation case. I mean, if it's an alienation case, go bananas, right? And do everything that you're supposed to do to stop the alienation and get therapy and, you know, all sorts of remedies that we talk about in court. But you yeah. got to see if it actually is one. And a lot of times it's not. It's, it's that abuser who is Sitting there, you know, I hate to use an example, but, you know, I have one recently, you know, the dad's just gone. He's just checked out of the kids' lives for, oh, I think it's been two or three years because essentially given a, a choice to stop drinking or have a relationship with your kids. And, you know, he chose drinking over having a relationship with his kids. Mm-hmm. Every single time he contacts my client, it's the, you're just alienating me for my kids. And I just, you know, you're just such an alienator. And this is the court's going to see, I'm going to take you to court and show it's like, hey, dude, you've been gone for two years and you haven't given up drinking. Maybe that's why your kids are having uh, a relationship. But it, it's shocking to me that I, even in cases like that, I'll sometimes 
sometimes see somebody go off the rails and just claim it's alienation when it's not. It takes a good lawyer to be able to show that it's not. It takes a good expert to come in and talk about why maybe it's not alienation and a different way of looking at it. So I guess, first of all, is that your experience? And then I want to talk to you a little bit about expert testimony. Yes, that's definitely been my experience. And you're right. Alienation does happen. It does occur. A lot of times it is an abusive parent who will basically tell lies about the other parent and try to get the children to see that person in a different light rather than what that children knows to be true. But they also use curse of control and intimidation and fear in that child to where they they fear retaliation if they show any type of love towards the other parent. Yeah. So yeah, that absolutely happens. And it does take experts to come in and look in any case that has any domestic violence or child abuse allegations. There's a study that was done by Saunders, Daniel Saunders. It was funded by the Department of Justice. And they basically the findings of that study is for court professionals to do four things, specifically in cases that have domestic violence or child abuse, and that that screening for domestic violence, and this is before any custody evaluation or any custody hearing should be done, is to screen for any domestic violence, to have risk assessment, to look at any post-separation violence, and then also any impact of violence on the children. And the study we use for that is ACEs, which is a study done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Well, talk to me about sort of making it going back to you. I know you do coaching and stuff like that. Do you offer any type of expert witness services or consulting services for the lawyers? Yes, I do. So I, I do consult with lawyers on cases that are high conflict. And I am working with a an expert, a leading expert witness in this field. His name by the name of Barry Goldstein. He's been doing this for a really long time. He was a practice law for 30 years and then he's gotten into expert witness. He's also an author. He's written six books on the topic. And so he's basically a mentor for me in this area. And I'm, you know, I'm starting to work with him on that. And, you know, because that's definitely needed, you know, before COVID, they were going to try to have a program for basically deep domestic violence advocacy, people who are in the field to train them to become expert witnesses as well, because it's just such a needed thing in this space. Yeah. And that's all over the state of Texas, right? That you're available? Yeah. Well, no, expert witness, it could do any Oh, that's right. Where in the country? Yeah. You can do anywhere in the country. Where are you based out of, by the way? So I, I live in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So that's where I'm based out of. Well, let's actually wrap up with that. This has been really interesting, but can you wrap up with telling us uh, the most important thing is your contact information? If, if people want to get a hold of you to consult or, or hire you, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Okay. So I, my website is yorkcfs.com. Um, it's York Consulting and Family Services. That's yorkcfs.com. And then my email is just veronica at yorkcfs.com. Well, Veronica, this has been really fascinating. Uh, I know our listeners love hearing stuff like this. So I appreciate the work that you do and I appreciate you joining us today. Yes. And Jake, I appreciate you and Brian as well, um, because it's it's nice to have, you know, one of the things I, I try to do with for my clients is to have a network of trusted lawyers and other court professionals that, you know, we can refer to because, you know, again, in this space, you said it earlier, you really need a good lawyer who can fight for you and understand these types of things. So I appreciate that too. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk to everybody at the next episode. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks.